Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series of messages called Taboo, where we're talking about some of the things that you would like for the church to be talking about around issues that typically the church doesn't talk about in our culture, in our world today. Today, the, the topic that I'll be trying to, my best to address from God's Word is on the topic of immigration. Um, and I do so knowing that it seems like these days, if all you have to do is flip on the news or open up a newspaper, and the news headlines are constantly in front of us, aren't they? Especially here in Tucson. It seems like we can't get away from them. Over and over again, we see these stories of people who are on the other side of the Mexican border waiting sometimes for weeks to just be seen by someone in an immigration office to be able to apply for asylum or to be able to get entry into this country. Or others who have gotten over to this side of the country and they're being held in detention centers, sometimes for weeks on end. And now news headlines are coming out questioning whether or not those places are even decent places for, the, for people to even be held. And one of the things that surprised me in recent days as I've looked into this topic is the fact that most of these people who are coming to our southern border aren't even from, uh, from Mexico. They're not Mexicans, right? But they're actually coming from three countries in Central America in particular, now known as the Northern Triangle. The countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Many of them aren't motivated by desperate poverty. They're not just coming here to get a better life, to make a good paycheck to send home. Now we're hearing stories in the last few years more and more of women and children arriving on their own because they're so desperate to be able to get across the border and they're seeking asylum. They're trying to run for their lives because dad's been killed by a drug cartel for not paying uh, the payment that they were supposed to, he was supposed to pay them out of his paycheck. It was, it's because their lands have been stolen by a cartel. It's because young girls have been stolen They've been raped or tra- taken to be trafficked in another part of the world. It's because of so many of these reasons that whole families are deciding it's better off to flee for their lives and just hope for something better than to stay in one of these three countries where they've been living. Recently, I also discovered this, that among all the nations of the world where you know, they've, they've put together the murder rates of all these different nations of the world... Among women, two of the top three murder rates of all countries across the globe are found in these three tiny countries in the Northern Triangle. It is that dangerous to be a female in those countries today. So many of them, as I said, they're coming and they're looking for protection, we're finding out now. And 70% of them, when they arrive at an immigration office on our border in Arizona or in Texas, they don't have legal counsel. And 98% of them are deported and sent home. And for those who decide to stay and try to apply for asylum in Mexico, 75% of them are deported and sent home. Maybe you heard one of these latest stories that's really, that really messed with me and grabbed my heart. It got my attention about this whole issue. It was a story of a, a young family from El Salvador. Have you been hearing the news about this family? Um, so, you know, a, a few weeks ago, they arrived at our southern border at Texas and actually the Mexican village of Matamoros. And they were there to apply for asylum because of the th- horrible things that were happening to them and their family in El Salvador. They get to the immigration office and they see that it's closed that day. Not sure why, but it was. And even more discouraging is they saw a line of over 2,000 people outside the door waiting for the next day when the office would open. 
And this young man decided he was better off to try to swim the Rio Grande with his wife and his little baby girl and hope for the best by turning themselves in on the American side than to wait for weeks and weeks on end to see if they could even see someone on the Mexican side. As they tried to cross the Rio Grande, maybe you have heard the story, he's swimming, dad's swimming across with their baby girl and the current catches them and they're swept away. And mom watches her husband and daughter suddenly disappear. And they died. Closer to home, we've heard news lately of about a 36-year-old geography teacher here in town who has been charged with a crime because he saw uh, an undocumented couple in our desert just south of here, and they were dying of dehydration. And he decided to help. And now he's being charged by that. And in fact, it was brought to trial. There was a hung jury because the man stood up and said, my Christian convictions prevented me from walking away. The jury didn't know what to do with that. So now it's going up probably for a retrial. But what should a nation like ours do when we have over a million people immigrating into the United States every single year? I mean, do we continue to take in more and more? Does that, does that solve the problem? Or should we take in less? Some suggest our current system rewards lawbreakers. And it's harmful to the economy. Is that true? And what do we do as followers of Jesus in these situations? We're, I mean, we're living right here on the border. It's almost impossible to not be south of Oro Valley and not run into a family, a situation where we suspect perhaps it's someone who is here illegally. What, what expectations does God have of us? in these situations when we come across them? Or are we simply supposed to draw all these conclusions of how we're supposed to see immigration entirely on our own and from what the news media happens to tell us? Many Christians are torn between this desire to respect and enforce the law and this love, uh, desire to love and offer Christ's hope to those who were here as immigrants. How should we as believers see and respond to these cases when we see someone is in need and we suspect that maybe they're not here legally? Now, before I get too deep into this one, let me just say this to you this morning. With this message as well as all these other messages in this series, my goal is not to somehow pick out my viewpoint on this issue, on an issue like this, or any other sensitive issue, and try to convince you of what the way I see things. That, would not, that is not my role as a pastor, and it would be highly irresponsible of me to even dare to do so. But as a pastor, let me tell you, my goal is to challenge you every week to trust Christ. At times with even some of the most difficult decisions and life issues that we face today. And this issue, no doubt, would be one of them. So my goal will always be to challenge you to see from God's word what he says to you as a follower of Jesus and encourage you to respond in that way, regardless of what the world around us has to say. As I say that this morning, I also need to say this. I need to publicly apologize to each one of you who are here this morning, who have been around grace for a while, because I have not dealt with this issue before now. I have felt really convicted by God through this series that I have not addressed this issue because um, 
Let me tell you, the world's speaking volumes on both sides about things like this all the time. And if we don't know what God has to say to us in these things, then we're just left up to whichever news outlet we happen to listen to the most to make those decisions. I am called by God to preach the whole counsel of God's word, including on issues that are politically sensitive at times. When, Christ's words, when God's word speaks to us, when Christ calls us to take a stand on something, we are called to follow. And I'm going to do my best to try to present to you what the Bible does say this morning and show you what the Bible does not necessarily have to say. And I say that this morning knowing that grace is not unique. I mean, most evangelical churches today, they never even touch this topic because it's too much of a hot topic to deal with. And as a result, a recent news poll just came out a few days ago that says that seven out of eight evangelical Christians, they make their own decisions about immigration policy completely apart from their faith. And you have to ask why. I think it's because the church isn't speaking up and reminding us what God's Word does have to say about this. As followers of Christ, our expectation should always be to first find out what God has to say to us, what, where God's Word is clear, and to follow along with that. And then with everything else, we do the best we can to discern what the right decisions are. Even though at times we as followers of Jesus might disagree, right? Now, this morning, let me also say to you as we get started with this message, uh, in your online sermon notes today at mygrace.church, this is there every week, but I have a special use for it this morning. At the top of your online sermon notes there, you'll find a little box that says, my taboo question you know, for today. If you, as I'm approaching this topic on immigration, if you have any questions that you'd like to throw back at me, I'm going to actually deal with those. I'm going to have a couple of people up here on a panel in a little while, and we'll be discussing some of the questions that you have this morning. So feel free to share those. Just go online and type into me, shoot those to me, the, the questions that you might have, and we'll see how many of those we can address here in just a few minutes. But for now, let's just take a moment to go into God's Word and start to unpack some of these things. Now, I'm going to actually land most of my, spend most of my time from Scripture this morning in Leviticus chapter 19. So if you want to turn there, you can. I'm also going to be hitting on several other Scriptures to kind of lay a case for where I see that the Scripture speaks around the, the topic of the immigrant and our response to the immigrant, but um, you, if you want to go ahead and turn to Leviticus 19, you can. I'm going to start this morning, though, as you're turning there, but let's take a moment to just look at God's perspective, God's perspective toward the immigrant. I'm going to just lay out a few things to you here real quickly. Number one, this might seem obvious, but the immigrant bears the image of God just as much as we do, right? I mean, we see in Genesis chapter 1, God speaking very clearly about in the beginning, God made all human beings to be bearers of his divine image and that we're all equal, regardless of our race, ethnicity, or citizenship status. That means that we, all, we should treat all people with dignity and respect. There's fact, there's fact one biblical passage in James chapter 3 where it says that God laments for those who praise God yet actually despise others who are also made in his likeness. We see... We see from Scripture in the book of Psalms that God has a particular interest and passion for those who are immigrants as well as for the widow and the orphan. We, we see that God holds immigrants to the same standards that he has. He holds citizens. That we're to obey the laws of the land that we happen to live in as long as they don't contradict God's law. We see several passages in the Old Testament where God was reminding his people 
to treat the immigrant the same, that they're supposed to treat them just as fairly as everyone else. When legal proceedings in, um, in fair labor laws, that they are to be seen the same. And it also even points out that the immigrant is under the same laws of the land just as a normal citizen is, and that they're to obey those laws just as a citizen should. Which leads to, this morning, where I want to spend a little bit of time, God's expectations of us toward the immigrant. And that's where we get to Leviticus 19. Now, I believe that Leviticus 19 is the foundation point for what God, all the things. I mean, God speaks about the immigrant in almost 100 places in Scripture, believe it or not. But I believe Leviticus 19 is kind of like the foundation. It's the tone setter for everything that you see in Scripture from God's perspective toward the immigrant. So let's look at Leviticus 19. I'm going to start in verse 18. God says here, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love the Lord, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you've probably heard me teach on this verse of Scripture many times, right, if you've been around grace for a little while. It's the second half of the great commandment. It's the, when Jesus was asked, of all the laws that we have that God has given us, which are the most important, right? And Jesus said that's simple. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, is like it. It's the same, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you might see that verse and say, yeah, but Dave, that's great. But I don't see anything about the immigrant there. What does that have to do with the immigrant? Well, look a few verses down. Look down to verse 33 and God makes it more explicit. God says, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You see, God makes this point about his people once being foreigners in the land as well that they came into. And you see that God making that point, God reminding them of that multiple times in the Old Testament. When they start to get frustrated with the, all the immigrants pouring into their countries, is don't forget, don't forget that once you were in their shoes. If you think about it, this story of immigration, it's kind of like part of the storyline of the Bible. I mean, we see this played out throughout Scripture. Go back to the very beginning. Go back to Genesis, the story of Abraham. God calls Abraham to leave his country, his, his, the people he knows, and to go to a land, he says, that I will show you. And he says, I will bless you as you immigrate to this place that you know absolutely nothing about. Now, no doubt, Abraham was horrified. But God said, trust me. We see the story of a woman named Ruth, right? Ruth was a Moabite, a woman from the land of Moab. But she was motivated to leave Moab because of her, the extreme hunger, the starvation that was happening in her country. So she emigrates to the land of Judah. And we see in the story of, of Ruth that she faced fear and sadness and poverty and vulnerability in starting over in this strange place. We see the story of a man named David who would become the king of Israel. Yet, early on in his life, he runs for his life and he seeks asylum 
in another country among the Philistines, a group of people who really didn't have any use for the Israelites. We see the story of Daniel and his friends later in the Old Testament as they were exiled from their homeland and they were forced to resettle somewhere else. And if that weren't enough, we see the story of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, as a small child, was forced to flee from his homeland with his parents to escape death threats. And he began his life as an immigrant. He faced it again as he he moved back to the land that his parents came from and tried to start over once again as a young man. And his life, Jesus' life, is marked by caring for the poor and the marginalized, oftentimes crossing borders and breaking down barriers that people had toward the foreigner, like, for example, the Samaritan. In the early church, we see another example. In Hebrews chapter 13, we see that the early, the early church made it a priority to practice hospitality, to show hospitality to the foreigner among them. That was a mark of the early church. After wandering all that time in the desert with no place to live, God gave them a home. He gave them the land of Israel. And God said, never forget, generations from now, never forget that you were the people who were once there yourself. In other words, what God is saying is never forget to practice empathy. And in those moments when you get frustrated or you want to get a little bit upset with all those other people, whoever the other people are, it's basically, it's another way God's saying, don't forget to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. What if today, as God's people, we just take, took a moment to do that? What if rather than just seeing this as America's problem or the problem down there, we decide to put ourselves in their shoes as someone who lives in the Northern Triangle for just a moment. Think about this for a second. Say you're a man in the audience today. Imagine yourself not having been blessed to have been born in this country, but you were born in one of those countries in Central America. Say that you have a wife and children. You have a farm, you have a, a farm there. You have land that you have... If you've tended, your, your parents or your grandparents have tended, but the cartel has come in, and at gunpoint they forced you to leave on the spot, and they've told you, if you ever come back with your family, if you ever set foot on this land again, we will kill you. What would you do? If you've had, say as a woman in the audience, say you've had a child raped, or stolen, taken from traffic, taken by traffickers, and you have threats of another child being stolen, what would you do? Would you stay in your homeland? Or would you try to find somewhere else to live? Would you try to hide? Or would you, would you just, in desperation, try to find anywhere you could where you and your family would be safe? Would you be willing to come all the way across Mexico and hope perhaps that you can get through and get into America just so that you can protect your kids? Even, would you continue to do so over and over again, even if you keep getting deported and sent back? Or would you just give up and just say, well, I guess I'll just have to live here and hope I don't get killed? I mean, can you... I know this is uncomfortable, 
and certainly it is for me to even think about, to put myself in those, in those positions. But this is what we're hearing is happening in the lives of thousands of people every single day just south of here. Finally, I'll share this with you. The Bible says that we are to treat the immigrant humanely, to protect and when necessary, even, this was a surprise to me as I dug into this, to provide for them. In several places in the Bible, God calls us to not oppress the foreigner in any way. He demands that of us as his followers. He curses those who play a part in withholding justice or even basic hospitality from them. In at least three different parts of the book of Deuteronomy, God tells his followers to provide the immigrant with the basic necessities of life. Food, clothing, as they get on their feet and establish their, a new life for themselves in a completely foreign place. He calls us to come alongside them and to even share our own wealth with the immigrant, just as he calls us to share our own wealth with the widow and the orphan. He, he expects that of us as his followers. And for those in the time of Jesus who would say, yeah, but maybe it would say to Jesus, yeah, but Jesus, I mean, that was an antiquated law that God gave his people, the Israelites, 1,500 years ago. I mean, that, certainly that doesn't apply to today. When Jesus was on earth, he broadened the definition in Matthew 25 and said that the way that you treat any stranger, including the immigrant, is the way that you treat me. In other words, God is made very clear in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New that we are to love the immigrant as we love God. Period. That's a lot, isn't it? I don't have to bring my own viewpoints or conjecture to this, even though I'm still trying to figure out some of them for myself. I, I see that it kind of surprises me as I spend... I spent weeks thinking about this message because I wanted to make sure I got it right. <laughs> I knew I was living in southern Arizona. And I didn't want to get this one wrong, right? And I have spent weeks pouring over the scriptures, trying to understand God's viewpoint. And it's like, when it comes to the immigrant himself or herself, it couldn't be more clear how we're to see them. So in review, what has God made clear to us? Well, that loving our neighbors means treating all of those who are around us, regardless of race, ethnicity, or citizenship status, the same as we treat ourselves. We start with the fact that God says that we are all his image bearers. We all have the same divine imprint on our lives. And God says, I want you to pay attention to that. And because the immigrant is put in such a vulnerable position by being a stranger in a strange land, Oftentimes, not even by choice, but because they have no other choice left. Oftentimes, they're here poor and unemployed. God calls his people to step up and do something to help them. To not just expect them to find their way on their own. He expects us to love them as much as we love ourselves. By treating them well, by protecting them, and even when necessary, by providing for them. And as Christ followers, whether we're immigrants or not, whether, we're, whether, we're, whether they're immigrants legally here or not, even, 
God calls everyone to abide by the laws of the countries that they are in as long as they don't contradict God's law. That's a lot to process, isn't it? I realize here in the last few minutes I've given you more than you've probably ever expected to hear about immigration. God's stance on immigration has, I tell you, it's never been a popular one. Because no matter what nation you live in or what time period you live in, it calls you to love others the same way as you love yourself. You see, this isn't an American thing. This is living in a fallen world thing. We're going to always struggle, no matter, no, no matter what country we live in, to see others, see the other person the same way we see ourselves and our families. Now, for example, you could look, all, you could look back throughout all of hum, American history, just to go to American history, and you would see that no matter what time in American history you look in, you will see that there's always been a segment of the population, a vocal segment of the population, who have been against immigration for a particular people that they didn't really like and they didn't see as bearers of God's image. You can go all the way back to the very beginnings of our country. In fact, go all the way back to 1798, just shortly after America was founded as a nation, and you find Congress arguing about what became passed as law as the Alien and Sedition Acts. And in the Alien and Sedition Acts, it said basically that they did not want French people and Catholic people in the country. And they did their best to keep them out. Because they were hard to love. And they were hard to agree with. Then, a generation or so later, the target became those who were Irish. Or who were German. In the days leading up to the Civil War, for those of you who are American history buffs, maybe you remember this, there became a political party in this country, no longer is in existence today, called the Know Nothing Party. You remember this? Remember, remember hearing this? Probably don't even remember what they stood for, but that was a weird name for a party. The, the one of the main things on their political platform was, was that they, was, uh, they were just completely opposed to immigration. And one of the things on their platform was that they fought hard in the days leading up to the Civil War to prevent anyone who wasn't naturally born in this country to ever have the right to vote. Because they felt like that was the right thing to do. After the Civil War, we continued to find people that we didn't like that we thought should not be in this country. And Asians became the target. And there came a time in American history where it was illegal for any Chinese person, any Chinese person, to ever immigrate to the United States. By the early 1900s, it had gotten to a point in our country where basically if you weren't white and Protestant, you weren't welcome in this country. By the 1920s and especially into the 30s as we hit the Great Depression, even the church if you go back in history, you'll see this. The church blamed all the problems on America on the immigrant. And they wanted to keep them out. Over time, that got to a point where those who were of Latin American descent were no longer welcome in our country either, especially if they were poor. And after 9-11, it was those who were Muslim or who were of Arab descent. Historically speaking, the stronger our prejudices become, the less empathy we have. And our laws start to reflect those feelings. That isn't a judgment on us. Sadly, that's just, that's just human nature. 
That's no matter where you go, you'll find that. As long as we live in a fallen world, we will want to always care for ourselves first, to care for our own families first, the people that are like us first, and not so much to even downplay the great commandment. And you don't even have to be a person of faith. For those who aren't, maybe you're here today and you're not even a person of faith, just holding to the golden rule. It's hard to even hold to the golden rule to just treat others like you would treat yourself in situations like this because we always want to care for ourselves first. With all that said, I'm sure the questions to loan your minds, many of you, is this. But what about those, Dave, who were here illegally? And you know what? I can't answer that question. That is not my goal here this morning. That's something that each person has to discern before God based on what God has already spoken to us from Scripture. But I have to tell you, what Scripture has to say about the immigrant and how we as followers of Christ are to treat the immigrant isn't really up for debate. It seems pretty clear. The great commandment to love others has no conditions placed on it, including citizenship status. Now, outside of what the Bible says, I have to tell you that I myself struggle with this issue, struggle with understanding what do we do with this problem because we have so many people who want to come here, so many people who want to try to provide safety or a better life for their families. It's not just hundreds or even thousands, but no doubt millions as we see today, who want to come to a place of safety, particularly from Latin America. What do we do in this situation? Well, over the last few weeks, as I've been trying to discern that for myself, I have come across um, this one organization called the Evangelical Immigration Table. I didn't even know that this organization existed. But it's a group of Christian leaders from many denominations that have come together for the last seven years, and they are trying to wrestle, really wrestle, with immigration policy and to try to come up and basically be able to offer enforceable, common-sense solutions to our federal government. And they're now going before our representatives in Washington and constantly standing up to say, here is the way we should approach immigration policy from a biblical perspective. And if you'd like information about that, I'm not going to get into those details, but there's a booklet in your online sermon notes where they kind of summarize all this stuff for the layperson to be able to process that you can read this week in your online sermon notes, along with several other articles there as well. But with all that said, you know, we can see this as a, as a federal problem, but living here in Tucson, living here in Oil Valley, really this becomes a local problem, doesn't it? I mean, there are things that we see here that the rest of the nation doesn't see. Um, so as I wrap up this morning, I want to share with you um, a video clip that was just recently shown on television by the news station KOLD. Look at this. There are only two main shelters open in San Luis, open only at night for sleeping and for eating. The city and the churches don't have the extra space to give migrants the assistance they need. In many cases, these migrants are released from the cities where they are processed, like here on Nogales. They are generally bused to other cities while they await their trial date. And they are bused with little notice, and those cities frequently don't even know they're coming, cities like Tucson. I was there when one group of asylum seekers arrived at the Benedictine Monastery in Midtown. 
one by one, men, women, and children, exited a white Border Patrol bus. This group from Guatemala, Ecuador, and Honduras had nothing more than the clothes on their back and their documents in hand. Most stayed a day or two, sleeping in cramped quarters while awaiting cash or tickets from family or sponsors to get to a final destination. Depending on how many days of travel they're going to be, they get a travel bag that has food and water for that length of time. About 400 volunteers work around the clock to make the operation run smoothly, tending to their medical needs and feeding them before sending them on their final leg. It's so great to see the community coming together to help, but the crisis still growing. More shelters are needed. Yeah, you're right, Angelica. That uh, monastery that you saw there, the Benedictine Monastery, it won't be open very much longer. In fact, it closes at the end of July. That has the city putting out a call for action for more space and for more volunteers. There could be an empty hotel, there could be an empty school. It can be just about any space which will hold large numbers. Any place in town that has a room that can hold 100, 200 people uh, is in play as far as we're concerned. After seeing what's happened in Yuma where the number of refugees has overwhelmed the system, Tucson city leaders are scrambling to make sure there is no need for an emergency declaration year. We do need more space and we need more volunteers and we need the provisions because the numbers are not slowing down. The monastery will be redeveloped beginning in July, meaning no more refugees here. And with the numbers going up and losing its biggest site, this is a double whammy. I'll, I'll even tell people we're looking for miracles today and something happens and we make it. And so every day is another opportunity to look for that miracle. Looking for that next miracle is what the city of Tucson is looking for now. So if a thousand came in today, those thousand are gone in three days. And so it, it's just a question of, of kind of having enough capacity to deal with the ebb and flow. Adding the concern, Angelica, is that a lot of those volunteers are uh, from the Midwest. They are snowbirds. They have gone home now. So that is leaving a shortage here. That has the city looking for more volunteers as well as more food. And All right. So at this time, I want to um, ask a couple people to join me on the stage. Um, Dan and Sue Johnson. Dan was actually the founding pastor here at Grace Community Church back in the 1980s. And in retirement, he and his wife, Sue, have been working firsthand, spending their days helping with this volunteer crisis. Um, so would you welcome to stage Dan and Sue. All right, you know, this morning as, as we saw this video clip, we couldn't help but notice how um, it was talking about how quickly they're being moved in and out. And you guys have been working at the very facility that they show here, this Benedictine monastery, which is... Now, unfortunately, getting ready to close in the next few days. Um, what have you been seeing there? Because uh, we're hearing news stories, guys, of, you know, in, like in Texas, of people being held in these detention centers for weeks without even a shower. And I'm, we're hearing here that they're getting out as quickly as they're coming in. What do you see as you work with this issue? Well, they are, in fact, here only for a few days. They, they usually have a relative somewhere in Iowa or Delaware. And that relative then pays for a ticket for that family to come on a bus or an airplane to their location, and then they support that family. That I, I, I think it's important, though, to make a distinction between what you're, what you're talking about, it being in detention. And there are places in Texas and so forth where they're in detention for a long period of time. doesn't seem to be the case in Yuma or in the Arizona sectors. 
part of that might be because they have a place to release them. And Tucson's been very good about having these shelters like the Benedictine Monastery, and that's what Dan was talking about. In the Benedictine Monastery, they're no longer in detention, um, and they're only with us for a few days until they get to their final destination. And then they wait for their court date uh, in that location and as to whether they can uh, gain asylum. Now, one of the things that you shared in first service that was really an eye-opener for me, to be honest with you, that I hadn't really thought about or considered is, you know, so oftentimes we just, you know, we assume that you know, people are here illegally because we see someone who looks like they're of native descent and maybe they look, they look poor. But one of the things that you were pointing out to me in first service was the fact that when they apply for asylum and they are being released from these places, that they're not illegal. Correct. They're actually they're here that's illegally. A, that's a big misunderstanding. So if, if, if you come to the border and turn yourselves in uh, seeking asylum, your papers are processed. And if there is credible fear and they, fear that you, and they feel that you have a reason, a reasonable reason for seeking asylum, they process you to go ahead and go through the court systems. And while that's happening, you are here legally. You are allowed to be here. And I think that's a real big point of confusion for people. And sometimes those court cases can take years to, to make their way through the courts. So sometimes these people are kind of here in limbo for a long time. But then at the same time, the other side that we're hearing is that 98% of them eventually are just picked up and deported back. And that's the other that's discouraging thing, is that most, still most of them um, are deported, like you, you mentioned. And there's really no, it's not like they're just coming here, but there's nowhere they can go. There's no one they can do. And I, I think another thing I, I would like to, to point out is that, you know, you mentioned the situation in the, some of the countries they're coming from. It's not like they can move to a different part of that country. Um, there are rival gangs in the countries, and each gang controls a part of that country. And if you just up and move to a different part of the country, the rival gang looks on you with suspicion. They fear you. They think maybe you're part of the other gang. And so you're no safer there than you are in your home. So it's not like they can, oh, just move to another neighborhood or another part. No. <laughs> it's mm. not possible. They have to just get out. They have to get out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you highlighted well the danger that uh, these families are in, and we have seen this at the uh, refuge centers here in Tucson. And so Sue has a story about a, a grandmother, great-grandmother, who came across the border. Yeah, one of the, I think one of the people that we worked with that just touched my heart the most was a great-grandma who was 79 years old. She looked about 90. Um, she had walked across Mexico um, with her 3-year-old and, and I think about 10-month-old great-grandchildren because their mother, her granddaughter, had been murdered by the gangs. And she took them and fled, and she's coming here to the United States where her daughter, the children's grandmother, lives um, somewhere out east. I think it was North Carolina. And she's hoping that she and her daughter can raise these children safely here in America. Wow. So tell us, how did you get involved with this issue here in town? What was the start of this for you? The start of it for me was it was kind of placed in my lap. I didn't go looking for it. Um, it was placed in my lap. I'm a childbirth doula, which is kind of like a professional childbirth coach, and I was asked to be a, um, a doula for a, uh, a refugee family, a refugee family who had their visa. They had been a Syrian family whose village was bombed. They had fled to Jordan and were in a Jordan refugee camp for five years, and 
while they were being vetted, received their papers, their visas, were here legally in, and just had just arrived in Tucson and she was seven months pregnant. And so I walked through um, the medical system and the American way of doing childbirth with her and got to know them. And at about the same time, Dan was working with a Guatemalan family. Yeah, and this Guatemala, I had a pastor friend call me and say, we need support for a, a family that's come across the border. They had two teenage sons that were murdered by the drug cartel, and their oldest daughter was kidnapped. And so they paid the ransom to get that daughter back. And by selling their food truck business. Yeah, yeah, and then they fled to the U.S., stepped across the border, turned themselves in, and are seeking asylum. And so we supported that family for over a year. And it was, uh, it's, a, it's a very sad story. I think one of the things that that experience taught us, too, was how complex our immigration system is and just making your way through the court system and how yeah. so many of these people, and I think you alluded to this, they come without representation. So they don't have a lawyer to speak from the, for them, and they don't know the court system. You know, it's, it's hard, even if you're not a, an immigration lawyer, if you're a lawyer but not an immigration lawyer, it's hard to navigate the system, so it's very complex. You know, there's another story I want to tell. Uh, at one of the refuge centers, there was a, uh, a gentleman who came with his family, and he was unlike other, the other people at the refuge center. He was talkative. He was obviously educated. He asked me what my name was, and I said, it's Dan, and I, he called me Danny the rest of the time. And we, sat, we made, sat down at the dinner table and had dinner with him, and he had a beautiful little daughter about nine years old, and, and he said, she can sing. And I said, uh, cantas cancion. That's, that's as much Spanish as I know. And, and so she burst out in song and sang her song, and her brother sat next to her and put their hands over their ears. Just, and I thought, these are just like my kids. Yeah. Krista would sing a song, and the boys would crawl underneath the table. You talked about the image of God in every, every person, and you see it at the monastery, at the refuge center. Mm. That face-to-face -face image of God. It's, it, it, it's, it's a life changer. It's a life changer. So in, in wrap, wrapping up here, um, if, if, we just, if some of us decided we wanted to get involved, I mean, what do we even do? Where do we go? What, how, how could we help, and what would be the first step? What would call, like? call Sue. Email Sue. Cat, yeah, give me your email now. But a Catholic Social Services is the one one that uh, is, has the Alitas House, they have a Marillac Lodge, and they have the monastery. Monastery is the one that gets all the news. But they have put together, they're very organized on, on how they use their volunteers. You go through a one-hour training with them, and they have them often, you know, several times a week. And at that point, you can do whatever. And let me tell you, they need anything. If you drop off a couple of Costco things of toilet paper, they will thank you. Um, you know, they, they need supplies. They need volunteer. You can, you can be in the craft room with the kids. You can just go and play with the kids. You, if you speak Spanish, you're very needed um, to help them uh, translate for people. Um, you can make soup at home and, and drop it off there. You can go in and make food with them. You can clean. You can wash clothes. You can take clothes home and, or sheets and stuff home and wash them and bring them back. There are so many things that you can and, do. And, and the most important thing is play Uno with the kids. That was my specialty. <laughs> How about that? Okay, so, so it's not quite as complex or complicated as we no. might think in getting involved. Absolutely not complicated at all. 
Well, if any of you do want to take a step along those lines, feel free to just use your, your online comments at My Grace. Send me a note, and we'll, I'll be glad to forward those to Sue and c- get you connected with her. Thank you guys for helping us to see this a little bit more clearly yeah, from a local perspective and, today. And, and thank you for talking about this. And yes. I agree with you that most evangelical churches aren't willing to bring it up. Just talking about it is, you know, a, a good thing. Well, I think this is a, definitely a challenge for all of us. It's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to walking the walk Jesus calls us to, isn't it? All right, well, thank you guys. Um, yeah. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity today to dive into your word and to process with you what you have to say about the immigrant. Lord, we have, each one of us in this room today and each one who's listening online, no doubt, have heard hours and hours of opinions about immigration coming from pundits on one side of the aisle or the other. And Lord, it's hard in those situations to hear your voice in the midst of it. But Lord, I thank you for not leaving it a mystery for us. You've made it clear how you see the immigrant and how you expect us to, even when it's not easy. God, I ask that you would give us the courage and the boldness to follow you, even when it's not popular. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to process Scripture and help that help inform our own opinions about immigration policy and what they should or shouldn't look like and how to even perhaps lobby our own local legislators and state and federal government legislators to, to do what needs to be done to fix a broken system. Lord, in those times when our heart is calloused, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts. In those times when we run into someone who may be homeless on the street or who may be an immigrant and who may or may not be legal. Lord, I pray that you would move, move us to love as you would love, to move past our fear and our doubt, move past the need to determine if they're legal or not, and just love them as you would. Help us, Lord, remind ourselves, as you reminded the Israelites centuries ago, that there but for the grace of God, we could be in that very spot. And we have generations that have gone before us who have been in that very spot themselves. Lord, we love you. And we are so thankful that we have a place to be able to process through these sorts of tough issues, a place of faith, a place where we can support each other and the struggles that we face. In Jesus' name, amen.